and welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Risa Brooks, professor of political science at Marquette University and a leading expert in the study of civil-military relations. Risa, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Compared to a lot of other areas of political science, I think, uh, your field of study is maybe less well-known and perhaps less appreciated by policy folks in D.C. and certainly the public at large. So why don't you just tell us what the study of civil-military relations is? How do you explain your subject matter? Yes, absolutely. So when folks are talking about civil-military relations, they're usually talking about a variety of relationships. Um, Sometimes they're talking about the relationship of the military institution to society. Sometimes they're referring to intramilitary relationships, so how sort of different layers and levels of the military interact. But I think most commonly what people are thinking of is the relationship between the civilian political leadership, the president, Congress, political appointees in the Department of Defense, and the uniformed military, and the interactions and relationships among those actors. One of the most famous political scientists of our time, probably, is the late um, Samuel Huntington. And one of his most famous uh, works is his book on civil-military relations called The Soldier and the State. And it's become pretty standard in teaching both civilians and members of the military about proper norms and the balance of civil-military relations. Uh, But you've written that, especially these days, uh, Huntington's model deserves more scrutiny. So first, just tell us what that model is and uh, what you think its shortcomings are. Absolutely. So you're absolutely right that this model or this conception of how civil military relations should be organized is really pervasive and not just in the U.S., but globally. Um, And it's sort of remarkable in that respect. And what Huntington argued way back in 1957 um, in his model, which he called objective control, which I think is more commonly understood as the separation of spheres approach, is that the military and political leadership should operate in distinct silos. The politicians should be in charge of all decisions that have any political ramifications, policy um, implications, decisions about when to use force, when to use the military. And the military should operate in a politics-free zone in which it is the implementer and executor of those decisions. And only at the very apex should they those two sides meet. And in that case, the military should also sort of retain its apolitical position in relationships with with the civilian leadership, with the political leaders making key decisions. Um, And this model has shaped sort of prevailing conceptions of military professionalism. It's influenced even how civilians think about how they should relate to the military. It's affected um, the nature and structure of the advisory process and how military leaders approach that. So it's had a lot of uh, ramifications um, and shaped, I think, how the country makes decisions in wartime, um, how it, um, and it, it sort of assesses strategy and the failures of that process um, in a pretty profound and not always fully appreciated way. Being a member of the uh, armed forces is really to be a member of a, a very exclusive club uh, with its own sort of subculture. 
What does the research say about how people in the military have their worldview shaped by their experience and the culture and the community that they're in? And, and then what are the implications uh, for how we want to manage civil-military relations, therefore? Certainly, the members of the military are diverse in their backgrounds, and one can make a lot of distinctions between officers and enlisted or just... Um, you know, particular backgrounds or world ex or life experiences of individuals. But I think perhaps one, one direction that your question points to is a particular sort of pathological dynamic that I've talked about and explored, and others have too, um, that's right now evident within some members of the military. And it relates to how um, to sort of attitudes toward American society and the sense of sort of um, elitism or superiority that we've that we've found in survey research um, repeatedly over several decades when questions are asked um, about you know how do you think about um, the American society and the sort of sense of, well, military culture is more disciplined. It's more uh, selfless. It's, uh, you know, less indulgent, all of these things. And that sort of pervasive set of attitudes exhibited by some notable percentage of respondents on these surveys is, is sort of a piece of, of an alarming or a disturbing aspect of American civil military relations today, especially the relationship between society and the military and that set of questions. Just to sort of fill that out, it's coupled with another sort of pathological set of uh, attitudes on the part of American society, which is to view the military, you sort of revere it from afar, put it on the pedestal, and then not much care about learning about it or paying attention to it. And that, in this sort of this weird sort of set of relationships in which the public reveres the military, but doesn't care about it. And some in the military sort of view American society with some manner of contempt um, is, is not a healthy state of affairs um, and, and a set of problems that poses that a, a lot of analysts and um, observers of civil military relations in the U.S. are, are concerned and disturbed about, hmm. disturbed by. That's very interesting. What is, do you think, a proper way for the public to view the military? Because obviously there are problems that arise from the public's tendency to fetishize military service. And um, how, how should the public view the military then, if not reverence and ignorance? Uh, what's the proper way? Sure. Yeah. So um, I don't think the metric should be that there's a happy sort of ideal place of exactly how much respect the American people should afford the military. I think it's better if they do respect the military, but more important is the reason why they do. They, You don't want the public to like the military because it likes, um, because it has some sort of distorted conception of military service or some sort of almost militaristic aspect to it. 
um, to its attitudes. You want them to respect the military because it's good at what it does, because it performs well. And that's the metric that I would point to. You want, it isn't actually healthy for the military to be revered in this idealistic way. It means that the troops that everybody who thinks for their service aren't really being served well by the American people because the American people are not holding that institution that is their boss to account. Um, and so really it's it's why Americans revere the military that's probably more important than how much they do. Right. I want to ask you about some some recent trends in how executive branch positions that are traditionally filled by civilians have become increasingly filled by current or retired military officers. This manifested in a number of cases throughout the Trump administration, but perhaps most prominently was the nomination of uh, James Mattis to Secretary of Defense, which required a special waiver to get around this requirement that there's, uh, you know, that people be out of service for seven years before entering into such uh, roles. But then surprisingly, I guess, Biden followed up and, and sort of did the same thing with Lloyd Austin, who also needed a waiver. So first, talk about the importance of rules like this one. Why is it important that we have that kind of space? And then tell us how you assess this apparently bipartisan trend. Mm -hmm. So I think in order to understand why those rules are in place, why the Secretary of Defense, who's a political appointee, who it acts as the translation mechanism between the White House and the executive department, the Department of Defense, why that person is a civilian. We have to go back to 1947. We have to go back to the National Security Act of 1947 and this fundamental legislation that sought to create an entire sort of um, civilian oversight body in, in a, a set of an infrastructure for overseeing the military. Um, and key to that idea is that civilians who are the elected political leaders, and ultimately, if democracy is working properly, and that, of course, is another uh, conversation, um, ultimately, they're held to account for the decisions they make about the, how the military is run and how they use its resources. And that in order to ensure that civilian um, political leaders are actually able to um, realize their political goals and 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 con and make sure the military is sort of conforming with that. That you need a civilian in charge of the Department of Defense, and by civilian, somebody who has experience with politics, somebody who has the kinds of skills and background that enables them to have some distance from the military, although also understand it. Um, somebody who is fundamentally a politician, right? That's what that job is. Um, and so if you're taking somebody from within the military who's recently retired, and that's the key thing right here, it's about distance from retirement, they still retain all the social networks they had within the military. They still retain a particular mindset, a cultural view toward um, toward sort of politics, you know, with this sort of uh, sense of being apolitical and what that means to them. And 
they're just pretty close to those that they're supposed to be overseeing, right? And in charge of. And so there's a sense of that's really um, not in the spirit of civilian control and the sort of architecture that um, has been created to provide for that civilian control. Um, when Mattis then was became Secretary of Defense, now we have to remember that was a very bipartisan um, backing for to provide him a, a waiver from the law that requires him to have been retired for seven years. And, you know, it had a lot to do with the politics of the Trump administration, et cetera, and what was going on at that time. But I think Mattis, who, um, you know, General Mattis, and still was referred to as such, even when he was secretary, really inhabited a military mindset. And I don't think that that's necessarily a criticism of him. I think he embraces that. Um, and, you know, you already had, this didn't start with Mattis, but you had, you know, an, an empowerment and a growth in the joint staff, in the military side of the Pentagon, at the expense of the Office of Secretary of Defense. And then in his leadership, some of those dynamics, I think, were reinforced, or at least that's the perception of many. And then, you know, come along, um, Joe Biden chooses to nominate Lloyd Austin. Now, I it's really important that, you know, our understanding of the principles of civil military relations aren't a direct critique of Mattis or of Austin. Um, as individuals, they um, are, you know, all we know is that they're people of great integrity and skill. But there is a larger principle, which is that it, it tells the military and American society um, on top of all these concerns about civilian control, it also tells them that the military should have the prerogative to basically oversee itself, right? That that this it, it undermines the importance and salience of civilian control in the public mind um, and is, is sort of corrosive to this larger principle that of how the process is supposed to work. And I think for that reason, um, despite liking and admiring Lloyd Austin, many people were concerned about the precedent setting nature of Biden following so closely in Trump's tracks in this area. You co-authored a, a piece in Foreign Affairs in which you wrote, quote, over the past three decades, civilian control has quietly but steadily degraded. Senior military officers may still follow orders and avoid overt insubordination, but their influence has grown while oversight and accountability mechanisms have faltered. I wonder if you could just expand on that a bit. Yeah. So I think the, the starting point is to understand what civilian control is. Um, so often there is a huge misconception or a lack of thinking about what that actually is. People think it just comes down to authority. Does the military follow orders or not? And by that metric, everything is fine in civilian control. We do not see overt insubordination of that nature. But if you follow what I was just talking about, it's sort of about the architecture and the way that the structure needs to be set up to enable civilians to realize their goals. That's when you start to see flaws. And, and it's about, you know, it isn't a sort of yes, no, good, bad. It's a, it's a continuum of how good is that apparatus, that architecture really operating. Um, and I'll, maybe I'll just focus on one sort of piece of that puzzle, which is um, sort of the advisory process and the relationship at the top between the senior military and the political leadership and how civilian control is supposed to work there. 
going back to that Huntington model, that separation of spheres, this siloing of the political and military that he advocated and that is prevalent today, there's this sort of notion that that process, if it's working right, is pretty much a transactional process, that civilians figure out what they want. They provide guidance to the military leadership. The military leadership then goes um, and, and figures out and thinks about several options, often three options, and delivers those to the civilian leadership. The civilian leadership sort of weighs and measures, asks questions, while the military remains in its pure zone of military activity, again, as if that's really true, but this is sort of the model in the abstract, um, that, and then civilians may ask for some changes, but the military then goes back um, and then in sort of an iterative process comes back with some revised options. That whole process is what our model of civilian control is and the advisory process of how it works. It's really fundamentally flawed, as you probably can tell just by listening to me, right? Because what sort of gets lost in that translation mechanism, what gets lost in that process is strategy. Because politicians have political goals. They also don't always know exactly what their political goal and how the military resources can work together with that. It's a fluid process. It's not just let's decide what we want and see what the military want it says can happen. It's a, what civilians are really looking for is this sort of, as I like to put it, a theory of how force might or might not be used in support of a political objective, which they may not have decided upon in advance. And so now you have this process that is, is not fulfilling or meeting those civilian needs, but also one that's sort of strategy free, because strategy is the marriage of politics and military activity, right? And if you have a culture of military um, professionalism, the, the separation of spheres model that makes military leaders believe they should retreat when you get into sort of the fuzzy muck of politics and how it mixes with strategy, You're ha you have a problematic process. So that's sort of one aspect of the problems in civilian control. And then the others are, relate to sort of these broader sort of institutional architectural issues with um, sort of breakdowns or shifting of oversight to the military de facto because the, the structures aren't as robust as they should be in DOD. So there's layers of issues there um, that I think all point in the direction of corrosion of civilian control. Well, let's dive into, uh, I think, some examples of that broad abstraction that you just described. So I remember during the Obama administration, Obama took a long period to review Afghanistan policy. And, um, you know, it was kind of famously controversially reported that uh, the military was boxing him in, giving him these three options, which you described, which, you know, one is barely doable, two is right in the middle that has to be basically chosen, and three is, is uh, outside the realm of possibility, too. Um, you know, the, the manner in which the military engaged in that policy review um then got a bit of a a uh a different scope to it when afghanistan the afghanistan papers as they came to be called were published in the in the washington post this lengthy investigation demonstrating time and again that military leaders would basically not tell the truth about the progress 
uh, of facts on the ground in Afghanistan and the benchmarks for success and so on. And then we go even further into Trump and Trump campaigned on withdrawing from Afghanistan and somehow got pressured into uh, another surge, which lasted basically the entirety of his presidency. So um, talk about the military's influence over the question of Afghanistan and whether or not to withdraw as we recently have or continue what was basically a lost war for uh, a couple decades. Yeah. So let's start with 2009 and the review that Obama ordered when he first came in. I think if you look at that period of time and it, as you, as you know, I've written about this, so um, it's not a surprise what I think it's one of the most, um, you know, negative sort of periods of civil military relations, I think, in recent history. Um, and, and I should say that so often when people are judging whether civil military relations are healthy or not, it depends on whether they agree with the military's pushback and the reasons for its pushback. So people who are advocates of the surge in 2009 tend to sort of be a lot more forgiving of what um, General Petraeus and Admiral Mullen um, and Stanley Mc- and General McChrystal did at that time because they agreed with what they were advocating for. And so one thing I should say is I'm just talking about the principle of civilian control, regardless of whether you support or opposed that surge decision at that time. And by that metric, it was unhealthy. You have a situation in which the military leadership strongly believes in the terminology of fully resourced counterinsurgency, a term they use over and over again. And doing things such as, I think one of the most disturbing examples of this is when um, there's an article written in the Washington Post critical of the prospects of sending more troops to Afghanistan. And the next day, General Petraeus contacts a reporter in the Washington Post to write a rebuttal argument, sort of talking about his view, right? It's really a striking thing. And you can go look up those two op-eds. It's, it's, you can see for yourself, that is what happened. That's what accounts of, of several insiders also say. And that's just one illustration of the effort to try to um, contort the domestic political costs that Obama would face for going against what this trio thought should be done. At the same time, it, you know, there's significant evidence that suggests that there was a reluctance to provide um, uh, all of the options in an open, forthcoming way, and that there was resistance to an option that might have emphasized counterterrorism a bit more than just this fully resourced coin effort. And so, you know, what does all of this kind of say about Afghanistan? You, you go forward and you have a different set of problems, which is the ones that Craig Whitlock has uncovered in his Afghanistan papers, which is, um, I think sometimes people describe it as lying. And I think that sometimes that rubs people the wrong way because there's a sort of premeditation that that implies. And I'm not sure that there was that premeditation. At the same time, there were a lot of doubts expressed by a lot of people and a lot of awareness that the that the strategy 
was really vague as to what the U.S. was doing and that operational concepts, right, coin is not a strategy, um, were substituting for strategy during this time. And that comes out in these papers and in the reporting um, and now book that Whitlock has done. Um, I think what you see there is also a failure of civilian control of the military because you see, um, uh, you know, Ethical fading, as some war, Army War College professors put it several years ago, in terms of reporting requirements, you see careerism, you see a lot of negative things that need to be held to account, and just frankly, poor leadership by some senior officers, right? This is where public scrutiny, where pressure on Congress to hold the military to account is essential. And that is another piece of this civilian control problem that's failing, right? That accountability mechanism, the whole theory upon which democratic civil military relations are premised is not functioning as it needs to. And so you get this perverse sort of cultural dynamics, go along, get along dynamics within the military that fed into this larger sort of waywardness um, and, and profoundly um, disturbing um, lack of accountability on Afghanistan. There was a phenomenon that developed during the Trump years, uh, often referred to as the adults in the room. And this applied honestly to both civilian and military officials in the executive branch. But the basic idea was we have an unstable fella at the top, and sometimes we need to slow roll something or actually not follow some of his orders. Um, I think of, for example, uh, troop deployments in Syria, which uh, Trump, tr Trump tried to uh, withdraw and order withdrawal somewhat outside the regular um, interagency review process. And it basically never happened despite the, the order of, of, of the president and despite a real lack of conversation about why U.S. troops were there and what the strategy was and so on. But um, with that general kind of context, we recently heard a lot of news about General Milley's call to China. Uh, this was reported by two Washington Post reporters in a book about the final uh, period of Trump's presidency. And uh, I wonder if you can just talk about that event, how you see it. Uh, there was a lot of, I think, murkiness in the way that it was reported and re-reported. So just tell us what you think about that event, how you actually see it as having unfolded and what, what its implications are. Yeah, I want to I, I do want to talk about that, but I do want to say something about the Trump vignette, because I think the Trump example that you just gave, I think yeah. that it's absolutely the case that there's evidence or it, I shouldn't say absolutely. It certainly appears that there was um, efforts to contort the decision-making context and shape the information available to Trump um, in particular ways. Having said that, the part of civilian control that I haven't talked about and civil healthy civil military relations is the obligations of the civilians to the process. In order, part of that is 
listening to the military, even if that doesn't mean you have to follow. And that's where the error and the surge and all of that is. You shouldn't be pressuring if you're the military, the civilian leadership to follow you, but you have to listen and you have to have regular order and process. And so part of the pathology in that whole dynamic, not to not blame military leaders and hold them to account, is that that process wasn't happening in any sort of normal way. I mean, there's this there's a was a memo that was sent in, I believe it was January after Trump lost the election, in which he's asked, or he he basically sends a memo, not even with sort of going through regular interagency, nothing, no, no process, telling the military to just pull out of Afghanistan in two weeks. I mean, you just don't do things like that if you're if you're uh, on the civilian side. And so they have obligations too that they need to meet. And I don't mean that just for Trump. I mean, for all of them, that is part of the health of this relationship. Um, going back to the, to Millie and China. Now the China thing I think is less so there's two things that Costa and, and Woodward report. And one of them is sort of this reassurance to China, these military to military contacts. I think now we know that that was all signed off on. That was official. There were, you know, eight, 10, 12 people in the room, according to different accounts. Um, and he was basically actually, you know, a purveyor of um, Trump's overall message, right? Trump says he doesn't, didn't want a war with China. What Millie was doing was helping prevent such a war. So I think that incident is less provocative than the, than the comments that are made about um, Millie inserting himself potentially in the chain of command for a nuclear attack. Um, that is, so Millie basically is reported and, you know, there's not a lot of context for these Woodward Costa comments. I mean, that's really important to kind of bear in mind. We don't know the bigger picture, but basically Millie is sort of on the spot for having said that, you know, wink, wink, nod, nod, everyone, if a attack is ordered, I should be in, I should be consulted. And his sort of rejoinder has been in by convention, there's a chain of communication. And, and I'm not saying I should have been allowed to overrule that, but I am saying that I should have been notified. I should have been part of that conversation and we could debate the sort of informal norms and whether that applies. But I think the you know, the larger issue here is it's really unhealthy when you're relying on the military to save your democracy. And that's where we are. And Americans are looking to the military uh, to save them as the adults in the room. They're not going to save us. That's not what we should be focusing on. I mean, not to say they don't serve with honor and they don't respect the Constitution. That's not the military's role. That's not a healthy society that looks to the military to save it from itself. And so, you know, ultimately, I am a skeptic of that argument. And I see how much you know, the willingness to ha uh, sort of rely on the military, call on them to intervene, to stop and, and inter intervene with whatever a president wants really depends on whether you agree with that president or not. And, and it's a very unprincipled stance. Um, having said all that, you know, I myself um, grapple with, you know, some of the things that we're observing in our country. And, you know, ultimately, I want the military to act on the side of the Constitution as it's written, not as some, you know, conspiracy theory say what it says, but what it actually says. 
And if that does require some dissent in, in the most rarest of moments, when the stakes are incredibly high in that existential moment, I think that might be different. But on a day-to-day basis, you know, we need to get back to not having the military um, being looked to as a savior of democracy. I wonder if I can ask you about another uh, controversial incident in the Trump years. In the summer of 2020, there were uh, large uh, and extended DC protests. Um, and Milley, to, to mention him again, we found him uh, on the streets of, of DC. And there was some measure of military uniformed presence. And then, of course, to uh, add fuel to the fire, you had prominent Republican Senator Tom Cotton write a New York Times op-ed calling for us to send in the troops. Uh, can, can you give us any insight or assessment on, on that whole situation? Sure. I mean, I think it's a it's a dark moment in U.S. civil-military relations um, for a number of reasons. I mean, mostly I think it has to do with, you know, let me step back for a minute. Sure. Some of the problems that that lead up into that moment are much more longstanding than Trump. And it's the idea that you're using the military as sort of a political prop. Now, traditionally, prior to Trump, it wasn't that they, the political leaders were trying to use the military as a co-partisan, as treated as their ally. It's that they tried to take advantage of its, of its popularity, you know, by vaunting their military service and commercials or making speeches to the military about foreign policy, whatever, whatever. Um, Trump comes along and it becomes much more that he's trying to convey to the military that he views them as his partisan ally, Um, you know, talking about them voting to him. I mean, the list goes on and on and tries to convey to his political base that the military is on his side. Eventually, he gets pretty disenchanted with the generals, the generals not going along with that. And so he reverts to talking about the enlisted being on his side. And then there's those nasty generals over there that are part of the military industrial complex, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But ultimately, all of this treatment of the um, military as sort of your partisan actor and the resources, co-partisan, and you're using its resources for your own political aims sort of is crystallized in that moment in June 2020, when in the face of protests um, that had been unfolding. Now, early on, there had been some vandalism at some of these protests, but the Guard, the National Guard, if there are civil disturbances, is the force that would go in and, and deal with those. By the time, anything like that, the by the time we get to June 1, things had really calmed down. And now Trump is starting to talk about getting the active duty military, not the National Guard, the active regular military on the streets to police American citizens. And doing it, um, you know, a part of the 82nd Airborne is brought into the outskirts of DC. They have bayonets. I mean, it's just, it's just a horrific sort of moment to be thinking about this. And Trump has the legal authority to do that. He can invoke something called the Insurrection Act, which allows the military to participate in these activities legally. Um, And basically, Secretary Esper 
and the uniformed military leadership and the retired uh, senior leadership are all pretty freaked out about this, to sort of put it in colloquial terms. Um, and there's pr- significant pushback. And eventually, Esper goes out, um, probably the, one of the things that led to his future firing after the election, um, and says, you know, we don't think this is warranted that active troops should be out on the streets. You know, the military is very aware of a it, it doesn't view itself as being involved in internal missions, right? That's not what the U.S. military thinks its job is. It's also really sensitive to its to its popularity, right? It's the one institution that, for the most part, has proven resilient in retaining its popularity over the years, and it wants to protect that. And so there are reasons why there's pushback um, to that. And then I just think it's appalling to think without cause that you would put soldiers trained um, for external missions in law enforcement capacity, potentially, and what a disaster that is when it's blatantly not needed. And so I think it it's, you know, a longstanding politicization of the military by civilians is crystallized in this moment that's a deeply disturbing episode in recent American history. To uh, to ask you about something that's much more recent than these other examples, but sort of harkens back to this uh, policy discussion on Afghanistan that we were talking about. Um, uh, right now, as I understand it, uh, President Biden is undergoing a review of, of nuclear posture and nuclear policy. And I'm seeing reports that he's facing a lot of pressure from the Pentagon specifically to think twice before rolling back the role of nuclear weapons in U.S. foreign policy. Um, they cite China's nuclear modernization projects and, and, and Russia and so on. Um, it's, it looks to me, at least from the reports, that it's, it's another example of the military kind of crossing a bit of a line in terms of, of policy. Uh, what, what do you think? Yeah, so I don't work on nuclear issues. Um, and so I'll just offer that as a qualification. But um, my sense from my colleagues who do is that what we're seeing is an iteration of sort of a longstanding story, that there's a debate between um, those who believe that um, nuclear weapons need to be um, regarded or maintained in a way that maximizes the robustness of the deterrence um, that they provide. Um, versus the catastrophic risk that using them would result in and the cost to maintain the arsenal. So there's these tensions, right? And my sense is that the military usually sides on one side of that, right? That they are much more thinking about robust deterrence versus catastrophic risk and cost. Um, And so that's not really a surprise that the configuration of preferences is kind of playing out that way. Also, I think it's not surprising that there's talk of sort of finessing options. It's one of these signs of, you know, deficiencies in um, civil-military relations, right? You don't want, I mean, while it's uh, not unusual and it's not new, ultimately, if you believe in democracy, if you believe in democratic civil military relations and the way the process is supposed to work, you're supposed to provide complete information, um, explore all options um, without value judgment and um, with efforts to, uh, you know, sort of limit the advocacy inherent in 
um, putting together options um, to sort of weed that weed out that component and put those before a you know a president through before the interagency process and let them decide. So I think that this story, you know, we don't know exactly what is going on, and we don't know, you know, we have. Kirby saying, you know, this Pentagon, Pentagon spokesman saying that there isn't an effort to sort of contort options. So we don't really know. But if it's happening, it's not a new story, but it's not a healthy story either. So just to conclude, um, you know, you talked about this before, um, but I want to ask you about really the responsibilities and obligations that um, elected officials, civ the civilian leadership of the country actually have. Um, as ordinary members of the public, like you and me, I think we have to expect a lot out of both the military and the civilians. But um, elected officials have a, have a responsibility um, to the public that is unique in a certain way. And so, and, and it seems to me that if if, if we're going to improve the political culture overall in the direction that you've been talking about, um, politicians will have to resist some incentives, right? That they're, that they're incentivized sometimes to act in ways that create unhealthy imbalances in the civil-military relationship. And so I wonder if you could just talk about what you think that group of people really needs to know uh, about your work. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the really real challenge here is that the incentive structures for civilian political leaders are really perverse now um, because there isn't a lot of interest or knowledge by members of society to put pressure on them to hold the military to account and to do their jobs. Now, I have to say, I think it's also important that, I mean, that narrative that I just spun is not new. Right. I think it's important to note that there are some members of Congress that do the work. And then if you watch the testimony, you see some, the gadflies and the moronic behavior by by some, by a few. You, you know, wouldn't be hard to figure out who I'm referring to. Um, but there are a lot of people who do try to do the work behind the scenes, not in the public eye. And I think that supporting that is a key piece to changing some of those incentive structures. Um Ultimately, though, I would say to politicians, if I had a chance, if I had an opportunity, maybe some of their staff members will listen to this podcast, we can hope, um, that they're really doing themselves a profound disservice. They're doing themselves a profound disservice because they are undercutting their own authority by not actually exercising their prerogatives to hold the military to account and by vaunting military service um, and by sort of elevating the military in the public eye in this way that's not healthy for American society or for the military, um, that they need to sort of see themselves and take some of the political hits, which I don't actually think are that many. Um, if you really think about the areas in which Americans pay attention to, here's one of the advantages of, um, you know, of really asking those questions and making difficult decisions um, because it's to their benefit to empower Congress to do that 
because they are the sort of key participants in that process. Um, so, you know, that sort of moment of reflection, I understand, may not sort of do much to chip away at the disincentives to do that. But I think, you know, there are people who do want to do the right thing for their own moral ethical reasons. And sometimes they do that despite the incentive structures. And we should do more to appeal and to, you know, reward those folks who do that. Risa Brooks, thank you so much for talking with us. Oh, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to have the opportunity to talk about these issues.